Well, one of the hard things about the Christian life is that sometimes you know what the truth is, but your feelings do not line up with it. This happens quite a lot, actually. You can know, if you're a Christian, where your value is fixed. How much am I worth? You have an answer to that if you're a Christian. How much are you worth? You are worth God's Son shedding perfect and pure blood to bring you back into the kingdom. Now, that is a high value that the Lord has placed upon you. You can know that as a Christian and still feel like trash, can't you? It's just a hard aspect of the Christian life. You can know where victory comes from as a Christian, that it comes from Jesus Christ conquering the grave, conquering death for us, and yet sometimes look at the possibility of death and feel very different, right? Not feel so victorious. Sometimes you know one thing and you feel a different thing. And that comes out sometimes when we come together and we sing together in worship. Because sometimes we sing some of the most empowering lyrics that anyone could imagine singing. Sometimes I wonder if lost people come in and just wander into our sanctuary and hear this audacious stuff. We are singing victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me, he bought me, he loved me, ere I knew him. These are big things that we are singing. And sometimes you can come to church and feel a little, I don't know, groggy from the night before, or a little stressed because of the work you had to do to get here and how the kids behaved on the way in. And so here you are singing victorious words like this, and your heart isn't always lined up with it, is it? Sometimes you feel just something completely different from what we are singing. And sometimes that comes out in the way that we worship. Sometimes we're even in danger of proclaiming a false message to those who are around us when we're singing, proclaiming to them one thing with the words that we're singing and yet another thing with the apparent look of disinterest or even boredom that can be on our faces when we're singing that same old song again and it just doesn't feel quite right. Well, the songwriter writes a song about this, and a song called This Changes Everything. Uh, Matt Papa wrote these lyrics to talk about that very phenomenon. Sometimes the singing of the church just doesn't match the truth that we're singing. He says, I grew up in a little town. I used to sing in the old church house. There in the pew where I used to hide, I learned the story about the man who died. Well, I was sure I heard that he got back up. But as we broke the bread and drank the cup, it seems their faces told another tale because they were as cold as the bread was stale. Did I miss something? Was I not supposed to cry? Did they hear that preacher say, Jesus is alive? Because if this is true, this changes everything. If the truths we are singing are indeed as life-changing as we are, what is it supposed to look like when we gather and sing? 
What sort of singing and what sort of gestures does the Lord call forth from us when we sing to our victorious King, Jesus Christ? That's the question that Psalm 47 answers for us. As on one hand, it tells us how glorious a king he is, and on the other hand, it gives to us a vision for what worship of this victorious king looks like. Let's look there together at Psalm 47. I'll read it from beginning to end here. You've already read some of it together this morning, and we'll read the rest of it later on yet again. The psalmist writes, clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to our God, sing praises, sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather together as the people of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to our God. He is highly exalted. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a call to every person everywhere to worship the Most High King, Jesus Christ. And along with it, a picture of what that worship can look like in moments when we sing of his victory and of his lordship over all of the universe. Now, this psalm is broken into two halves, and it follows the same pattern twice. The pattern looks like this. First, the psalmist calls everyone to worship Jesus Christ, then declares that he is king, and then looks back on what he has done. He calls, he declares, and he looks back. Then he repeats that pattern. He calls everyone again to worship Jesus, declares that he is king again, and then looks not back but forward on what he will do. So the pattern is call, declare, look back. Call, declare, look forward. Let me show that to you. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 is the first call. He says, clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. There is a call to worship the Lord. After he calls, he declares, and that is in verse 2. He declares that the Lord is the great king over all the earth in the second half of verse 2. And then verses 3 through 5 look back on what he has done. He has defeated Israel's enemies. He has given them a great heritage, and he has gone up to enthrone himself as king in Israel and install the king that he has chosen. So he's called, he's declared, he's looked back. That's the first half. Then it's repeated again in verse 6. We're called again to worship him. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises, sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Verse 7 declares again he's king, for God is king over all the earth. And then verses 8 and 9 look forward to what he will do, using present tense to refer to a day that is yet to come, something that as yet has not happened. So there's the pattern. He calls, declares, and looks back. Then he calls, declares, and looks forward. 
Now, the reason I took the time to outline that for you is because I'm going to do that in reverse order this morning. We're going to start at the end. We'll look back and look forward on what the Lord has done that shows how worthy of worship he is. Then I'll declare to you his kingship and lordship overall. And lastly, I'll save for last what this psalm does at the beginning, which is call you to worship him and give you a picture of what that might look like. Let's start with looking back on what the Lord has done and looking forward on what he will do. The psalmist looks back through verses 3, 4, and 5. And that pattern again is, well, it's a pattern that can fit many events in Old Testament history and even New Testament history. First, the Lord defeating our enemies, then giving us a great heritage, and then installing himself as king or rising up as king. Now, this song was worded this way so that it could be used on many occasions. There are several points in Israel's history where that language could fit. And I'll tell you a few of the stories because they demonstrate just what a great king the Lord truly is. This pattern fits well with Israel's conquest of Canaan and then the Lord installing a king in Canaan. Some of you know the story that the land that we call today Israel was then called Canaan, was promised to Israel's ancestors. I'm going to give this land to your son. And as the nation of Israel left Egypt, they had wandered in the desert under God's guidance for 40 years. They then went into this land of Canaan where they found that the people were much stronger than them, were much more numerous than them, and probably had some better technology than them as well. So by any measure, the people they were facing in this land were going to defeat them in battle. But over and over again, you read these incredible stories of Israel winning the battle despite great odds in the book of Joshua. The very first one is the city of Jericho. And the people going to a city much bigger than them that really just this one city ought to be able to wipe them out. The city is surrounded by this massive wall, so they will never be able to get into the city and take it over. But the Lord has called them to do it, and so they're brave, and they go and do it. The Lord says, okay, march around it once a day for six days. So for six days, one, two, three, four, five, six days. Now they have marched around the city six times, and nothing has happened. And on the seventh day, he says, okay, go around it seven times, then... Let the trumpets blast and let all the people shout. So they march around it again. They raise the trumpets. The trumpets blast at full volume. The people let out a big shout and Jericho's wall just tumbles down to the ground at this sound. So with great ease, the people of Israel were to go in and to conquer the city. Now, if I'm asking you who won the battle that day, you'd say Israel won the battle, right? And you would be right. There's a little story before that that we often forget about that reminds us who really won the battle. Just before these days, Joshua comes across a strange man that he doesn't recognize, some sort of angel perhaps, or maybe the Lord himself appearing to him with his sword drawn. And so Joshua in caution says, are, are you for us or are you for our enemies, right? Am I about, is this going to be like an X-Men scene right here? Are we about to have a battle? Like what's going on here? And the man says to him, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Take off your sandals. This place is holy ground. And then the people go to fight the battle of Jericho. They march around the city. So who won the battle then? 
the Lord won the battle. He sent his army, and that is why the walls fell, because the Lord is the great king over all of the earth, worthy of all of our worship. And so that fills, you know, that fulfills verse 3 pretty well. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He conquered their enemies for him. The Lord did this for them. And he did it to give them a blessing and a heritage. As verse 4 says, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. Often the land that was given to Israel was called their heritage. Now other things were as well, but the land certainly was. So he defeats their enemies and then gives them this great blessing of land. And it's prime real estate, the land of Israel. It's strategically located for trade. If you want to trade, you've got to go through it. And you might as well trade with them on the way because of the way that the seas and all this stuff is arranged. It's very abundant and fruitful land. Livestock grow really well on it. Plants grow really well on it. They called it the land of milk and honey because you could grow anything wonderful there. And God says, I give this good land to you. So fulfilling verse 4, he gives them a great heritage. And then verse 5 refers to the ascension of a king. He's gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. And many times the Lord installed his king in Israel in a way that fit these words. They would go up the hill of Jerusalem with a great shout and with trumpets blaring and a great festival, the Lord would go up and would anoint his king on the hill of Jerusalem. So in one way, you could have, they could have sung this song about their own history, about the Lord defeating their enemies and giving them the land and enthroning his own king on the hill in Israel as they went up with a shout. But it also could very well be sung about the day that King David defeated the Philistines and brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem where they went up with a shout. Now, you may not be familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. This is a a beautiful box that Israel carried around at the command of the Lord. They could not touch it or they would die because the Lord's presence dwelled in this box. He chose to put his presence right there in this Ark. But bad news for a little while. The Philistines had come and defeated them in battle because of their unfaithfulness and had taken it away. So King David rises up and is able to take it back. He defeats them in battle in a great victory. And he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord has won the battle. They bring the ark back. And there's this man who's a farmer and has a lot of land. And they say, hey, can we keep it here for a little bit? We'll just keep it, you know, in one of your sheds or something. We'll just put it in there. Would you hang on to it until we can get a place for it in Jerusalem? He says, sure. While the ark is there, his land abundantly multiplies. All of his livestock give forth. He's just immensely blessed as long as the thing is there. Then they come and they take it up to Jerusalem, just as is described here, going up with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet. They take the Lord's presence up the hill of Jerusalem, and the sign is he is king over this place. We put him on the top of the hill. We've got a tabernacle prepared for him. The Lord is our king. So I tell you these things on one hand to show you that these words could be fulfilled for a number of points in Israel's history, but also just to show you how amazing of a king this Lord is. He's Lord over every army, He is the Lord who gives us every blessing that he has, and he is the one that reigns on high and has gone up with a shout. And perhaps these words are best fulfilled by what Jesus did for us, defeating our enemies, giving to us a great blessing and heritage, 
and then going up with a shout to be enthroned forever in the heavens. Let me outline that a little bit for you. Biggest enemies we've got to defeat are sin, death, and Satan, right? If you could take care of those three things, would you be happy? No more sin in the world, no more death in the world. Satan is gone and can't do his stuff anymore. I sure would be happy. Well, Jesus comes. He is the only one of us who lives a sinless life, right? The only one who never rebels from God. And yet, the wage of sin is death, And even though he has never sinned, he willingly suffers death. Now, why does he do that? He does that on our behalf to pay for our sins, right? And as he does that, he defeats sin for us. He defeats death for us. He defeats Satan for us so that these things no longer have a hold on his people anymore. And this is why on the third day, he's able to rise up from the grave. Now, how is he able to rise up from the grave? Well, he is God, so he can do whatever he wants. But this is a sign that he has conquered death. He gave himself up willingly to it, but it holds no power over him. And in him, springing back from the grave is a promise for all of us. Death may take us, but it cannot take us forever, right? It has been conquered. It is a defeated foe. And in doing so, he has conquered Satan who has no hold on us anymore. So we are like the people of Israel who are looking out at some great army, afraid that it is going to come and wipe us out, but watching the Lord's army take care of it. You can imagine what that would feel like. We should feel the exact same way when we consider the hold that death has on us. None of us have escaped it. The hold that sin has on us, the hold that Satan has on us, Jesus Christ coming into the scene to say, I have taken care of it. I have defeated your enemies for you. This shows us just what a great king he is. Now, after he did this, he then was lifted up into heaven. And there's kind of a gap in Christian teaching, really. Like a lot of us don't really have a good picture of like, okay, why after he rose from the dead, Why did he go up into heaven and not just stay here? I would have liked it better if he had stayed here. Why didn't he just stay here? And what is he doing up in heaven? And why is that important for us? Well, on one hand, he did exactly what verse 5 says. He has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. He has gone up to be enthroned as king of the universe. And what he is doing, it is outlined a little later in this psalm, but I want you to see it a little more clearly and less poetically first in Hebrews 1. Would you turn with me to Hebrews 1? Keep a thumb in Psalm 47. We're coming back there. In verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews 1, we'll see what Jesus is doing right now in heaven. He has been doing the same thing for 2,000 years, and no one has interrupted him from this one thing that he is doing. The first sentence in verse 3 just tells us that he is God. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he he is God, he is king. This Jesus I'm telling you about is the Lord of Psalm 47. Now, the second sentence of verse three tells us what he's doing now. After making purification for sins, that is his death on the cross, his resurrection, after that, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what he did next after he went up. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years is he has been sitting down. And that's very important because of where he is sitting. He is sitting on the throne of the universe at the right hand of God Almighty as the eternal king and judge of all. The sovereign one who says, okay, now this nation will rise up and now they will fall. The sovereign one who says, now the tides will rise and now the tides will fall. He is sitting on his throne in heaven, ordering everything that is happening in the universe. And he's doing it for a purpose to an end. That end is to gather to himself a people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation who will one day worship him forever. Now, I said we'd be going back to Psalm 47. Let's look for that same truth in Psalm 47 in verses 8 and 9. Because what I just told you about is actually what the psalmist is talking about in verses 8 to 9. Here what he says. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Who is God sitting on his holy throne reigning over the nations right now? It is Jesus Christ. And verse 9 tells us of what is to come, the ends that he is orchestrating history toward. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. So this is not the princes of Israel. This is the leaders in every nation. What he is doing is bringing his gospel throughout the entire world. And once it has reached every tribe and every tongue and every nation, he will have built for himself a people of every hair color and every skin color and every language and every accent of every language and every culture and every this way of doing this and that way of doing that. He will gather them all together, raise all of us from the dead, those who follow him into everlasting life and reign with him and those who have refused him into everlasting judgment. Those of us who are with him, he'll gather together here on this earth where we will live in resurrected bodies, ruling creation for him as the princes of the people. The kings and queens who will be raised to rule with Jesus, the princes of the peoples who will be gathered together on the last day. Church, it's us. It's you and I who will be gathered with him, his kings, his queens, to rule creation for all eternity. The kingdom of Israel was just a little picture of that, reigning in glory for a while. This gathering is just a little picture of that. We have representatives here from, I think, six different nations in this room right now, maybe even more that I don't know about. How many states within the United States, I wonder, are represented here in this room right now? What a variety of beauty in the room right now. And it's just a little picture of the kaleidoscopic glory that he is going to reveal in this kingdom that he is building. What a beautiful day that is going to be. In that day, it will be said, the shields of the earth belong to our God, for he is highly exalted. Every army will fight for him, 
and will have no one to fight. (laughs) Every defense system will belong to him and will have no one to defend against. It will all belong to him. So there's a look back on what he has done and look forward on what he will do for us. And the whole point of that was to give it more weight when we look again at verse 2 and when we look again at verse 7. Can you sense what a big deal it is and how true it is when verse 2 says, for the Lord, that is Jesus, the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Can you sense the weight in verse 7 then when it says, for God is king of all of the earth, Sing praises with a psalm. This Jesus that we sing to every week is worthy of all of our worship. Last week's sermon was about how the whole point of life was to fear God and keep his commandments, right? You could say that this is very connected to that because this one is about how worthy he is of that reverence, of that trembling, joyful worship before him, of that keeping of his commandments. Why is he worthy of that? Because he's the great sovereign king over all. As verse 2 says, he is to be feared. He is to be revered and held up high as one that is so much greater than we are. Now, this word fear, I said last week, has both a positive or a negative meaning. It can mean positive fear or negative fear, right? You can, negatively speaking, you can be afraid of something when you see its might and power and you don't feel fully safe from it. Or you can see the might and power of a great kingdom or a great army and feel a very different kind of fear because you're safe, right? You can see the stealth bomber fly over at the stadium and just that incredible demonstration of this this thing that could destroy a city and you didn't even hear it coming like how powerful is that but you know the bomber's not there for you right you know that's there to defend you and so you don't feel scared you feel oh wow that's awesome right Or when the loud fighter jets come by at the parade or at the football game and you hear the sound and you're not scared of it because the fighter jets aren't coming for you, then you would be scared if they were coming for you. But no, they're on your side. They're keeping you safe. And so you're like, oh, wow. And that is the sort of fear that God's people owe to him. We look to him and we say, oh, wow. We shake a little bit. We say, "That's, that's our God. That's our king. And I'll worship him every way that he calls me to worship him because I am his. So that's the declaration. He is a king that worthy of worship. And so then we look at verses one and six, which call us to worship him. They say, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And verse six says, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing again and sing. It says sing four times. And the next verse says sing a fifth time. And so here is the call then. If God is that worthy of worship, if he has done this much for us, then the call to you is to give your whole life to him and to sing, shout, and clap to him with songs of joy, for he is a great king over all of the earth to be feared. 
Now, some of you need to know the way into that life. Like, how do, if I have rebelled against God, how do I come back in and live that worshipful life? The news I proclaimed a bit ago of Jesus shedding his blood to offer forgiveness for our sins. If you would trust that very death, Jesus Christ dying to pay for your sins, if you would trust that, that is all you must do to return to Jesus in worship. If you would like to turn from that, that is very simply what you do. There's not some magic like way you got to raise your hand or like sign or anything you got to do to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. No, just trust Jesus to secure it for you and he will be faithful to secure it for you. Now for the rest of us who have been worshiping Jesus a while, we've got details in this psalm that picture just how he must be worshiped. And I think the key word I would give to it is enthusiasm. Verse 1, for instance, calls us to clap, calls us to shout, calls us to lift up a song of joy. And verses 6 and 7 use the command sing five times between the two of them, four and one and a fifth time in the other. So if indeed he is the king who has conquered sin, death, and Satan for us, if he indeed is the king who has given to us a heritage of eternal life with him forever, then we must say, church, he is worthy of worship that is that enthusiastic. He is worthy of worship that when we sing of his victory, his resurrection, his kingship, worship that lifts up a shout of joy because he has saved us from condemnation. He is worthy of worship that lifts out and gives out a clap of victory because he has won the battle for us. Now, you might wonder what kind of clapping he's talking about here, right? Is this like, you know, probably most of the clapping you've ever done in your life is applause, right? Somebody performs something from you and you're like, yeah, all right, whoo. Or, some, you know, somebody caught a ball at a baseball game and you clapped for them, right? And that is one kind of clapping. Applause happens when someone does something for you and you want to give approval to it, right? They perform a song for you or they do a magic trick for you and you clap for them or whatever. That's not the kind of clapping that's talking about here, though. Uh, No, he's talking about a clap of victory. He's talking about the clap that those of you that lived here when Super Bowl 41 was played and were football fans, and when you watched Peyton Manning just sail that touchdown pass, and when you knew Super Bowl 41 was secured for Indianapolis, we have won that game. Some of you let out a shout of victory that day. Some of you said, whoo, right? You were excited on that day. Why? Because someone won the victory for you. That's what a clap of victory looks like. Now, my family and I have lived in other places, and we have watched teams win Super Bowls, and we have done the same thing. We have jumped to our feet. We have clapped. We have shouted. Why did we do that? Because someone had won the victory for us. Now, (laughs) I see what you're referring to there. (laughs) Now, That's what a clap of victory looks like. Now let's consider the victory that Jesus won for us. Some of you have one nagging sin in your life that you just can't beat, right? And you are wondering, or maybe you should be wondering, why has that nagging sin not robbed me of all of my faith? Like, why have I not walked away from the faith because of that one thing that keeps nagging at me? 
Or maybe you're wondering, why has the Lord not just condemned me for the fact that I keep falling into this sin? Have you ever wondered that? Well, the answer is because Jesus defeated it for you. So it holds no more power over you. You're not a slave to it anymore, so it's not going to pull you away from the faith. It holds no power of condemnation over you anymore. And so you have nothing to fear on the day of judgment because Jesus has defeated that sin for you and all sin for you. He's worthy of shouting and clapping in victory. Some of you hear the whispers of Satan in your ear and you know what his lies sound like. You know what his taunts sound like as they accuse you of sins that you either haven't committed or have already been forgiven of. As they tell you that your worth is about this big before God, when you know the truth that pure precious blood was spilled for you, as he taunts these things in your ears and discourages you down to despair and doubt, you know what he's doing when he's doing what you're receiving in that moment when Satan whispers those things in your ears, you're receiving taunts from an enemy that's been defeated. The equivalent of a Chicago Bears fan walking in here and taunting us about Super Bowl 41, in which we beat them, right? No power, no credibility in those taunts. And why is that? Because Jesus defeated him for you. Others of you look to the years in the future and you wonder when the day of your death is going to come. We know how the odds are. Some of us, it will be nearer than others. Some of you sense that you may be nearer to it yourself or you may be at least nearer than you were yesterday. That is a haunting thought. We have done funerals here together as a church and we all know that our time is coming. And yet, we don't have to be afraid, do we? Because that enemy has been defeated for us. The Lord has lifted that burden from us. Death may touch some of us. Death may touch all of us. But it cannot keep us down because Jesus defeated it. We will rise from the dead on the last day with a shout of joy and a clap of victory. And so the question is, if he has done all of these things for you, if he's won all of these battles for you, will you shout for him in victory? Will you clap for him in victory? For he is worthy of every shout and every clap that we would give to him. I hope you can see just from from these words, just from this psalm alone, that a worship service that is kind of ho-hum feeling from beginning to end is not acceptable before God. No, we must give to him our most enthusiastic worship. Now, this feels different at different times when we're confessing our sins to the Lord There ought to be a feel of both sorrow and hope and security when we do that. That's probably not the time to lift up a big shout of joy and a clap of victory, right? And when we are singing about our trials in this life, sometimes that has a a straining and, and sorrowful tone to it, even though it has hope. And sometimes we are singing about the great comfort that the Lord offers us, songs like, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, and there's a sense of assurance, But sometimes we're singing about his kingship overall. We're singing about his victory over the grave. We're singing about his resurrection from the dead. And those are the moments when we ought to lift up to him a shout, when we ought to sing a a song of joy, when we ought to give to him a clap of victory. 
And I think a lot of times what goes on there is we have seen in the last hundred years the way that church history has played out, and we have seen some of the most enthusiastic movements in the church drift either into carelessness in their worship, which two weeks ago Paul warned us against from Ecclesiastes 5, or drift into heresy in their preaching. And so we see that and we say, well, I don't, we don't want to be like them, so we're not going to do that. And then we find ourselves not knowing what to do with Psalm 47.1, to shout to God with sounds of joy, to clap our hands, all peoples. And so part of what I think the Lord is doing is just pulling us back from that to say, hey, you don't, you don't have to fall into the things that other movements have fallen into in order to obey the scriptures and worship the Lord with enthusiasm. Now, I do need to contrast this message with two weeks ago's message. Two weeks ago, Paul proclaimed to you from Ecclesiastes 5, uh, guarding us against careless worship, right? Guard your steps when you go into the house of God, that text said. He is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. That text and that sermon guards us against careless worship. We cannot be careless in our worship. This text and this sermon guard us against lifeless worship. So we got a fence on each side, don't we? We can't drift into carelessness. We can't drift into lifelessness. That means if you're called upon to offer up one of the prayers in the service, don't ramble on in the prayer. Don't be careless. Don't just say stuff in the prayer when you're voicing God's voice or God's people's voice to him. That means when you're called upon to read scripture in church, practice it, have it ready and read it with care. It also means don't do it lifelessly. Don't do it like it hasn't changed your life and doesn't mean everything to you because it does mean everything to us. So if I were to sum this up, I would say that there are points in our worship services in which we celebrate God's victory or kingship. And when those points come, we ought to have some loud singing, we ought to have some shouts of joy, we ought to have some clapping because that is the news that has rescued us from all of our sorrows. Are you guys with me on this? Y'all want to try this? Yeah? All right, let's do it. Let me bring the musicians back up. They practice this. They're ready for this. So I don't think I just sprung this on them. Uh, our closing song is In Christ Alone, which I trust that most of you know the words to very well. If you don't, they're found there in your bulletin. Uh, we're going to do just a little bit differently, not very much differently though. The first two verses... They just give us solid things to sing about, the stuff that we should sing with good volume. And then in that third verse, it gets very somber. Those of you who are looking at it can read it with me. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slant. Often we sing that verse very quietly. And then Paul went ahead and put in bold the next one so we would know when it comes, right? This is the point of victory in this song. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. There is a point in a worship service where we can lift up a shout of joy, can't we? So what we're going to do is we're going to sing through the song. And right there, right after that line, we're just going to hold the notes out for a little bit and give you guys all the space you want to shout for joy, to lift up a clap to him, to sing for joy. And then we'll continue on singing the song. Sound like a plan? All right, let's sing together.